Hello everyone, welcome to Beyond the Adventure, a podcast exploring why people took on their own unique journeys and what they learned from their experiences. My name is Gareth Brown and thanks for listening. On today's podcast, I have Javier join me. Javier has recently featured in Netflix's wonderful new adventure reality TV show, Outlast. We naturally discussed his time on the show, but we also talked about Javier's life before the show, how he developed the skills to survive in the outdoors, and how a traumatic car crash and subsequent injuries changed his perspective on life forever. So, hey, Javier, we're, we're live. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm just uh, loving all the attention. It's really nice. It must be kind of crazy, yeah? Um, especially given your background as what looks to be a bit more of a solo cyclist. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I've ridden years alone and nobody knows what I do. And now everybody's asking questions. Yeah, pretty wild. Um, well, I feel like this podcast could go in a variety of different uh, directions. I just finished watching Outlast last Saturday with my girlfriend. As I said in my message, I was pretty disappointed to see you go out in, I think, episode six, but um, you came through well, which which is, is probably better than uh, a few others. Um, and I think it'd be good to chat about the podcast, but then I think it would also be really nice to talk a bit more about your your background, um, some of your cycling. I really loved your quote on your website. I think it says something like, I really have nothing in this world but time and a bicycle, but that's all I need to make me happy and maybe a beer. <laughs> and I think... Um, yeah. That's a really nice, uh, nice story. And I've got a tiny bit of a background in bike touring, but nothing like what you've done. So it'll be cool to um, exchange some stories. So yeah, attention. How uh, how are you finding it? Um, it's all positive, which is great. Um, I think people really saw, um, saw some of my character that that I don't think many get to see, and uh, you're. You're right. I, it all does come back. A lot of people have asked me, how'd you keep your cool? And uh, it, it it does all come back to the thousands of hours on a bike alone and the patience and the uh, the determination. That's a, a mental thing. And so it really does relate to, to my cycling background. Yeah, for sure. Just that ability to be so independent for such a long period of time. I think yeah. shone through a lot. I think probably when people start watching the show, they're like, how can we, he's almost, it feels absolutely native to him in the way that uh, he's yeah. he's not worried at all about being alone up in Alaska. Um, but yeah, I guess it is the the bike touring and um, for, for across many years, probably there's other aspects as well, I guess. Were you always into bike touring or was that mostly in the last kind of 10 years or so? No, I've been doing it for 16 years. Wow. So I, I did it before my crash where I broke my legs and then I just did it even more after the crash. Shit. Wow. Yeah. I read about this and I think it was in 2010 where you had that crash. Yeah. Was, was How big of a, a moment was that for you in your life? I mean, obviously it was uh, really traumatic and you yeah. had, I'm sure that you had a shitload of rehab to go through. And yeah. Can you almost just share a bit about that time in your life? Yeah. In, um, so in, 20, 000, in 2009, I was living in Tanzania and I, I ran oh, an organization wow. called, I ran a nonprofit called Wheels of Action. And the plan was to ride all of the African continent and meet with small little nonprofits and basically create a network 
because what was lacking was many of the organizations out there were remote and nobody knew uh, they existed. So I thought the best way to actually meet these tiny organizations, mostly dealing with children, was to ride my bicycle to them. So Wheels of Action was born in Copenhagen, Denmark in 2007. And wow. uh, we were just a group of young students, business students, trying to come up with creative ways to, to battle poverty. And I said, guys, I could ride to all these places. So Tanzania was the first country we went to. We did projects. Um, I 2009 was an amazing year, really exciting, emotional. We did a huge project with uh, over 750 children. And then I decided I hadn't been home for four years to see my mother. So I said, I'm going to go home for Christmas. And I went home for Christmas. And then I was getting ready to leave on February 6th, uh, 2010 to return to Denmark. Um, Cause I had been there for all of my, all of my twenties, all of the two thousands. And um, on February 3rd, a car crash happened. A drunk driver caused it and uh, everything was destroyed instantly. I, I was crushed in a car. So my legs were twisted in the metal and I was hanging upside down. And my friend was, uh, my friend passed away. So she was in front of me. Oh, I was I'm in the so back sorry. seat actually. And uh, I sat there kind of going in and out of consciousness, but I was calm. So much like the show, I actually remained calm and that lowered my heartbeat. So I didn't panic and freak out and lose more blood. But they, uh, they got me out of the car. Probably it took 45 minutes to cut me out with these steel jaws of life. And when they pulled me out, everybody was just in shock because of my mangled legs. And we, we go to the hospital and the paramedics are looking at me and they're talking to me. And I was actually joking. I, I told them, wait, don't cut my, my pants. Those are uh, very expensive pants. I didn't know the damage of my legs. So they oh took out the gosh. scissors and they cut my pants. And I was thinking, oh, those were Swedish, uh, the brand uh, the, with the little with the little fox on them. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I said, oh, those are my favorite pants. <laughs> and then they take me into the the hospital, and they uh, normally they wouldn't tell you what was going to happen. But my brother is a police officer in this city that I grew up in, and so he came back, and family would never see me in that condition normally. And he comes up to me, looks at me in the the bed and I still haven't looked at myself and he told me uh they're going to remove your leg your right leg at the hip and I said no no way no way in hell are they going to take my leg and um they wheel me back into emergency operation and I see the surgeon there he has his hands up like this in front of his face his back to me and his gloves are on and I look at the table and the table's full of saws and all kinds of things to cut and I thought, no, 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 no. So I look at the uh, the doctor and I'm screaming, doctor, look at me, doctor, look at me. And uh, the anesthesiologist is playing with my left hand. He's trying to put in the needle that's going to knock me out. And I scream one more time and I say, doctor, you, you fucking look at me now. And the doctor was so confused. He turns around and looks at me and he goes, what? And I pointed at him and I said, if you cut my fucking leg off, I will kill myself. 
and he his eyes opened up like this oh everybody God. in the, the operating room would just gasp and then the anesthesiologist put me out and i i felt the burn that that stuff burns in your veins so once it it went up my left arm and it hit my heart and i was out next thing i woke up like 12 hours later and a nurse comes in when she, when i wake up and she goes hey welcome back and i said what happened and she grabs me and says, calm down. She goes, you scared the shit out of the doctor. Honey, he spent six hours saving your leg. And I was like, and I, okay. And I looked down and I had this huge steel cage on my right leg. And my leg was three times the size of a normal leg, all swollen. And then she told me, we're going to have to wait a few hours. And another doctor's coming here from the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the best hospitals in the U.S., and uh, she says, he's going to have to do another surgery to put your leg back together because the other doctor just saved it. But the other the new doctor has to put your leg back together. That was a, a, another very long surgery. It took five months to stand because I had a broken pelvis. My entire right leg, the, the femur, the knee, the tibia, the fibula, the ankle was broken in the right leg. So that's why they were going to take it from the hip. The other leg, I had broken the fibula and the tibula, tibia and the ankle. Uh, so five months to just to stand. And the doctor told me, I saved your leg, but you're not going to be able to use it. And I said, I will use it. I will. Now, it was two and a half years of self-therapy. The U.S. is very yeah. expensive. Healthcare yeah. is not. We may have some great doctors. But that's because we have so many accidents. Yeah. Doctors are really experienced. So when I went back to Denmark, eventually, I was walking with a cane and my leg was like cement. It was stiff. And the doctors looked at me in Denmark and they told me, had your crash happened here, we would have amputated because we don't have the skill to put that leg back together. So wow. that tells you how good the doctors were in, in Cleveland because they have practice putting all these people back together from so many crashes that happened here. Wow. But, um, so two and a half years of therapy on my own, mostly. And uh, I would put a, a wet towel with, with weights on my ankle just to make the gravity, pull it down and bend the, the tendon in my knee. And then I would sit for hours uh, on the ground, trying to put my, my, my rear end to my ankles just a normal sitting on your knees. And that would just slowly, I would hear the stretching. And oh, uh, I was able to, to get on a bicycle, on a stationary bicycle, eight months after the crash. Wow. And then after that, a, a year, I was able to ride a bicycle. So I was actually able to ride a bicycle before I could walk normally. Yeah. So on a bike, I felt free. But when I got on my two feet and walked around, I was disabled and I had a cane. And so that really angered me. I, I tried to return to my normal life in Denmark, but I, everything was, was different. Uh, to run the nonprofit I was running, the side jobs I did was I was a waiter. I was a waiter at the Hilton and the Radisson. And uh, they, they pay very well. In Denmark, you know, wages are yeah, good. Sure. So I would work, 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 and then save everything up and go to africa and uh it my money went very far 
so I could do these projects. But then be, being away for so long, a lot of my partners in Tanzania, they were suspicious. They thought I was another Muzungu who came yeah. here with promises. A Muzungu is just a white person uh, in Swahili. So they just thought I came there with promises and then left like everybody else does. Yeah. And so I lost face and uh, I, I lost my mojo. I used to have this, you know, the I, I regained it now, but I, I lost it for a bit where I kind of felt vulnerable and weak. And so I wasn't able to talk to people, potential sponsors, to and convince them that I could do this. When yeah, they looked at guy. my body, when I look, when they looked at my body, they would think, "Uh, oh, could you do this? Really?" I could see them judging me that as a disabled man, I don't think you're able to do this. And I felt that. Wow. So that's a bit about background and how I got in the crash and overcame. Yeah, it. that's crazy. Uh, can you almost talk me through some of those different emotions, especially that? you're after i mean immediately your reaction is to say no say this like no matter what but then that two and a half years of rehab like did you how did you manage obviously you did a lot of cell therapy how did you manage to keep that certain level of like positive mindset like was there other things that you were doing where were you at did you surround yourself with community and and i guess also like were there any key moments during that period where it really gives you just such hope and like can you almost talk me through them i bet when you cycled for the first time obviously there must have just been like raw emotion almost like, hey, like this is a massive step back. But yeah, what were, what were those phases like? Can you remember some of those times? Yeah, so um, I think the biggest, one of the biggest uh, changes after the crash and my healing is I, I went back to Copenhagen um, seven Seven months after the crash wow okay. and i tried to re i tried to return to my life um but at right about eight eight months i got on the bike for the first time uh, on a real bike not a stationary bike so riding the streets of copenhagen and the canals i almost felt like the old me again it, it felt yeah. beautiful and i rode to my friends to go meet them to 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 drink some beers on the canal and i said i want to return to this I got to do anything in my power to return to this. And I realized at that moment, um, I really got to focus on me. And the hard decision was if I stay in Copenhagen and um, I try to continue doing what I was doing, I wasn't working for me. I was working for uh, others, for the organization, the wheels of action. So I realized um, I really have to change my entire life. And the bitter pill that I had to swallow was uh, – I had to leave Copenhagen. I loved Copenhagen. I spent Jose, nine years right? of my yeah, yeah I, awesome. I spent nine years of my life there. Wow. And I uh, got my, my master's degree there. But um I had to take a step back and, and lose all my friends and lose all my 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 European lifestyle. Yeah. And I really felt I had to go back to the US because it, you know, that's the only place I was legal. It was my my visa issues and everything. I had to go back. So I returned to the U.S. and I joined AmeriCorps Vista, which is like the Peace Corps, but it is uh, Volunteers in Service to America. It's a program okay. where you help uh, poor American communities. And I chose to go to Alaska. So this is the first time I went to Alaska. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So in 2011, I get shipped to Ketchikan, Alaska, and I was working with a youth group over there. 
and a, a local in, indigenous community, the Saxman community. And so I ran a, uh, a young men's uh, cooking group. <laughs> oh, amazing. So, what, what amazing so what, prep as well for what it was to come. <laughs> yeah. So what we did was I wanted to be creative in the way that I, I uh, address these, these men, young men. And uh, I felt that through food and through my travels, food overcomes all, all, all obstacles, all cultural barriers. If you start to cook with each other, um, you actually stop thinking the person's different and you actually, actually treat them like a brother or sister. Yeah. And so using food and sitting down and talking, we were able to uh, discuss cultural differences, discuss problems, all while eating just a meal. Because it's very, it's very odd if you sit down and just try to talk to, to someone. And I'm not a therapist, but I, I think if you had a, some snacks and a burger, a therapist could get a hell of a lot more information out of you than sitting in a leather chair trying to talk I, to them. I, I could not agree more. My, um, I've chatted to a few people, especially if have done long distance travel uh, in really, really rural areas. I chatted to someone a few weeks ago and they, uh, they, they did the, uh, the silk the Silk Road, uh, yeah, and um, he was actually filmed the documentary behind it. And then also one of my friends, Rebecca or Bex, she uh, cycled back from Switzerland, back to New Zealand. And, um, and in the, the almost the poorest areas, the in rural China, etc., it's always the moments when you have a meal with somebody that like the real richness comes through of yeah. your experience. Like it's, it's an ability to share in a way that you just can't previously. It's, it's an ability to kind of maybe someone brings out a photo or book or, or that they, they bring something to bring to, together the language. Somehow you have some, there's an ability to kind of share Hey, you do a task. I do a task all clean up together. I, I couldn't agree more. I think um, there needs to be more of that somehow. Like we do it with our friends, but we don't do it with strangers. Uh, so yeah, that's a really cool initiative that you were doing up there. Really, it really sounds good. I yeah, I agree completely. So when when we uh, we started cooking, all you know, all the young, all these yeah. young um, Alaskan natives, they thought it was odd and funny. And then I said, you know what? Bring your mother in. And they're like, what? I said, bring your mother in. Teach her to cook you this meal. This is your culture. This is what you need to remember. And. Uh, they started to realize that I was connecting everything because many of these men, they're, uh, they might not marry a, a native girl, so they might lose some of their culture. And I, I said, you need to carry on some of these traditions. What's going to happen if, if your mother's gone and she never taught you how to make this dish? So they were thinking in a new way, like, oh, I would like my child to eat this. I would like to preserve this part of our culture. And I said, you could do it now and we could all enjoy your, mo your mother's cooking. So we kind of did that. And in that process, I asked them things that they they took for just as normal knowledge. And I didn't. So this is where they would say devil's club tea, a tea that I used in Alaska in, in the in the competition. And I yeah. asked. So devil's club is a very powerful drug. It could be a sedative if you drink a lot of it. Wow. So it's a plant, it's a plant with a lot of thorns. And if you touch it with your bare hand, it burns you because there's like a, a fiery type of uh, sap in the needles. Wow. But if you grab it with leather gloves and you scrape off the thorns, then you could get the hard inner core, break that open and take out the inside and you boil that. You can make a tea. You can make tons of medicines from it. And so 
they started telling me this like it was common knowledge for them and i was amazed i said yeah, this is what i want to know yeah i said this is the stuff that people want to know that 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 w- the whole world needs to know these old medicines that you guys just know and you don't think anything about like why would you reach for a, a store bought tea when you can make your own tea from from something that grows in your backyard so this is where i really started to learn more native clinket knowledge and uh i also started hiking the mountains over there and i was riding the only road because i was on an island so i rode the only road back and forth on my bike and uh i ran into a lot of bears oh shit <laughs> and, and uh ketchikan rains a lot so much so i got used to all the rain yeah. there was a uh, one week it rained 24 hours a day every single day non-stop oh my and gosh so you you had to learn how to dress to go out uh, outside the house and i thought this is so intense but that was really preparing me for my future riding the colombian <laughs> the colombian <laughs> rainforest so uh that was a very i think that was a uplifting experience working in in alaska and uh then after that is when I started to embark upon some very big bicycle trips, just because I, I I I started realizing, I guess after I healed my body, that uh, yeah, my time was precious. Yeah, the, it didn't matter. I, I went to school and and I got a business degree at a at a top ten business school uh, college in Europe, and uh, I studied in different countries. India, Indian Institute of Management in Budapest at the European uh, University there. And I thought, none of that really matters. I don't want to work in an office. I don't want to wear a suit and tie. All of this is kind of a waste of my time. But what can get me on the road? What could uh, help me find happiness on two wheels? And it was becoming a handyman. (laughs) I started, I started, I went to San Francisco and I started just changing light bulbs and painting bedrooms and help help fixing and remodeling kitchens and bathrooms. And that work gave me more joy, more freedom because I could go and, and work whenever I wanted. So I could work four hours a day, have lunch and then go take a ride around the city on my bike. Yeah, Nice. And I was truly free. And I thought, I was trained for years to work in an office. I was trained to 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 uh, obey and follow these these rules to make a corporation very wealthy. And I thought, I now I have to leave all that, relearn, and basically uh, do simple things that that I thought everyone did, but actually a lot of people don't know how to. Uh, put in a new outlet in a wall and i thought okay i could do that so i did things that were like those little tasks that were uh, easy so i was seeing through the eyes uh that i was just asking those native guys about their teas and their things that they thought everybody knew and then i'm now in san francisco a year later realizing not everybody knows how to do the things that (laughs) i know how to do (laughs) so let me try to get paid to to help other people do what i know how to do well yeah and that's how i became a handyman and that's how i got more free time to start exploring and do bigger trips 
so during that time it really sounds like you were you were fusing some like real core skills together like especially in alaska some of the more outdoor let's call it survival skills or nutritional based living off the grid of the off the earth in many ways uh and then obviously some of the practical skills it's just like how do we put these things together how does this all work i mean obviously it came through stronger later in the show like with whether it's putting up a shelter etc but it sounds like those two periods in your life were were core to that especially off the living off the ground and, and off the earth were there any other times in your life where you really picked up a lot of those skills because it came through really strongly in the show like you knew your shit <laughs> and and there's definitely like an an element of um it sounds like you you can pick up a certain amount along the way if you've been traveling as much as you have but it, it still felt like you would have had to have spent more core time learning some of those things so were there any other times around outside of the kind of handyman life and the time in alaska that um supported you in that journey of building that skill set yeah so my entire 30s that was 10 years of intense travel um hiking and cycling and yeah. learning by doing and also living in areas um like i would one one trip uh i flew to panama uh i i tend to like to fly to different destinations and then try to connect them with the bicycle so that yeah. i have uh, like um i went to panama and then i went to colombia and i said okay these are the two main destinations that i gotta get to panama and i know how to do things here to fix the bike and then I got to get to Colombia and I, that'll be a base. And so I went to Panama and I ended up living on a, on a beach with uh, a hermit. He, he lived on the beach for 27 years. Wow. He walked out, he walked out of his village and lived out there. And I, I went on a hike because someone in a village told me, Hey, this, this guy lives down there. If you keep walking. And I said, how far? And they just said, keep walking. He'll find you. And and I kept walking and I thought I was lost. And then um, this guy comes out of nowhere and says, hey. And he spoke a, a patois, which is a mix of English and Spanish. And he came to greet me. And they, they told me to, when I went out there to take a bottle of rum. So I actually carried a bottle of rum. <laughs> and so he came out to meet me and he says, hello. And I'm trying to speak English and Spanish to him. And he told me that the fly told me you were coming. The fly. And I said, the fly. Wow. And I said, the, the fly? And he goes, yeah, my friend, the fly. And the fly, no joke, this gigantic fly landed on his head right here. And he goes, <laughs> and I, I thought he was just crazy. So we go and we sat down and I pull out the rum and he was so happy. So he started slicing coconuts and opening the coconuts and we poured the rum directly in the coconuts and we're drinking it. And so after a while, he goes, and I see flies, a bunch of flies are coming and he stops talking to me and the flies land on his head and then fly around. And he says, some people are coming from that direction behind us. And I went looking around and I thought, how do you know that? And he says, the flies, the flies, <laughs> tell me everything. He used to shake his hands like this. So when he, he, he would go and speak with his whole face. And he says, the flies, the flies, they tell me everything. Oh my and I gosh. looked at him like, you're drunk, you're drunk. And no joke, five minutes later, people were coming from behind us. And I, I turn around and I was, we were so far out in the middle of nowhere. And I look and I'm thinking, how the hell did he know this? So that was the first time I started to realize some of these, uh, I guess, 
indigenous people, these these people who really spend a lot of time out there, yeah. they they do they, they can communicate with even flies. And I thought this is amazing. This really intrigued me, and I wanted to actually go to even further harder to reach communities. And I started doing that on my bike and doing that on my bike and spending time and also cooking, not only cooking with the men, because the men tend to like to drink with each other, but mm. I would deliberately try to speak with the women and learn how to cook from the women. And so I would always bring a bottle of alcohol because that yeah. always opens the doors. Yeah. So that that's really how I started to learn things. If I go into a community and, um, you know, and, and they're making a, a, a new shelter for their animals out of mud and and some animal feces i would say i would like to learn and, and help or if they were but butchering an animal i would learn new parts or new ways to eat some of the parts of the animal and uh in all of those types of experiences i picked up something i picked up something somebody would just go and grab a, a, a herb and i'd go well what is that what'd you just grab and they'd show me what what they grabbed and I would make note of it, take a photo, try to figure it out. And then I'd learn, okay, I could use this if I find it in the future. So that's a decade of doing this. Wow. And that all, all comes together. Uh, and, and, and when, I, when I, I'm out there and I, I pick up something or I see something, then I, I, I'm reminded of the story that I was told. So in the show, uh, a Clinkets ta taught me, a Clinket tribe taught me about the muscle trick, how to kiss yes. the muscles. So that just came to me because I was like, oh, okay, well, I know this because I've done this, experienced this. Um, there were many other instances like that with little things, uh, mushrooms or, or seagrass or um, even some things that alleviate constipation uh, that, that I told, but they didn't, they didn't make it in the show. Yeah. But um, I learned from doing. I didn't learn as others did. Uh, or claim to have learned by watching reality TV shows, survival shows. Yeah. Some people's experience was mostly uh, just watching some survival shows. No, I <laughs> yeah. and I didn't. I didn't pick up a book and read about this stuff. I actually learned from from doing and talking to people all around the world and, and cycling through that's, their communities. That's such a rawness and uh, in the way that you've learned, which is just incredible. And unfortunately, more and more people are. Um, not it seems like taking up the opportunity to learn in that way anymore especially now that we've just got so much multimedia youtube and uh and all these tv shows as you mentioned and all the books and all the podcasts <laughs> it's it's all out there for um there's always a, a guide to something but um that uh personality trait almost of wanting to learn in that way do you think that just started really young or did that really start to just really happen as a, as more of an adult? Cause I'm, I mean, even in your business life, I can see that even your personality would be the type that would be like, okay, this project didn't work, but really why didn't it work? <laughs> like, let's, let's figure that out. So I feel like it, you will carry that through almost no matter what you put your energy into, but yeah, where do you think that that energy came from that kind of those traits of wanting to learn in, in such a rich and meaningful way? Yeah. I'm now in my hometown where I grew up. This yeah. is Youngstown, Ohio. And um, it's a, uh, in a way, it's a bit of a dead city. This used to be a, a really bustling steel city. But in the 80s, when all the steel went to Japan, this steel, su this city suffered when, when all the industry left. And so growing up here in a dying city, uh, in it was gray and you could still see some of the pollution in the, the river. Yeah. 
I I was just amazed and and just thrilled and excited to watch the Discovery Channel. <laughs> <laughs> I used to watch uh, a, a show called uh, Globetrotter, and there was a host named Ian Wright, and he would grab a backpack and just jump on a plane and travel all over the world. And Ian would always he would taste these weird foods. He would eat a, a worm, a little grub, and uh, even if it wasn't good, he would make a face and show so much emotion in, in, in his way of traveling. I fell in love with the show and I, I just watched that my whole childhood. I watched Ian Wright travel and um, there's some other travel, tra travel shows, but they were really posh and too proper. There's one yeah. guy who, who traveled Europe on what he was, 40 euro or a day or something. And then he would hop trains. And I thought, I, I have no interest in doing that at all. And he would stay in pensiones and little, uh, <laughs> little uh, yeah. uh, uh, guest houses. I said, no, no, no. I'm going to do what Ian does. Mm -hmm. Ian was sleeping on the back of a truck in hay, uh, hanging out and camping with, with uh, Mongo Mongolian the tribesmen and their, their horses. I said, I'm going to do what Ian is doing. And my wow. mom told me, we, we grew up poor. So my, I have three brothers and my mom in a single, single parent household. My mother said, honey, you could do all, anything you want. Just first get your education. Please yeah. do that. And then you can do whatever you want. And I said, okay, I, that's what I'm going to do. I, I got this desire from watching and I would, you know, I would love to meet Ian Wright because he really, he laid the seeds of creativity and 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 travel. He he gave me this wanderlust, and, and uh, I've had it ever since uh, I was a teen watching him. So I, I've been slowly ticking off all the check marks of the locations he's gone, and wow. I I'm going because I want to go where everywhere he's been. And um, I don't think there's a travel channel or travel show like Globetrotter uh, presently. But back then, it, it was a it, it. That's what really got me thinking of of the world being smaller uh, than people made it out to be. And uh, at first, I tried hiking and backpacking, but then quickly I, I switched over to the bicycle, and the bicycle really made the whole world so tiny. Yeah, the bicycle is just it's it's the best way to travel. You can get to places that you can't get with other modes of travel, but you can cover distances that matter in a certain amounts of time. Uh, and there's something about definitely. It seems I think I read on your one of your Instagram posts. Uh, you stayed in over 300 different homes or something like that. Yeah. I think on one of your travels, yeah. one of your. So there's just like it when people see that, especially in certain countries, maybe you have others, but they're so warm to you as a as a traveler. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, it's and you don't even need to use a platform like warm showers is a pretty popular. Yeah, platform. exactly. Yeah. But honestly, warm showers it gets a particular type of person and that's a person who owns a computer or, yeah. or has money to own a smartphone. Um, I stayed with the majority of people from just meeting on the road, just saying, Hey, you stranger, what are you doing? I'm traveling the world by bicycle. Come stay in my house. I've, I've had people invite me into a house where I thought, okay, I'd have my private space. No, I was sleeping with the entire family in one room. <laughs> yeah, one I'm room. like, okay, this is really intimate. But they invited me in their home. I'm not going to leave sure. now. So the majority of the people I met and 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 
and who were the warmest were truly the poorest people. Yeah. And they really wanted to uh, listen to your stories. And that's a benefit of speaking another language in these countries, speaking the home language. I spoke Spanish in all these countries. So I was able to tell my adventures and they, you know, there's not, they didn't have TV. So it was the stories and the drinking with the elderly and the stories inspiring the little kids and them telling me that they're going to get on a bike and do the same thing when they're older. That was amazing. That was uh, the stuff of you see in movies. That was really cool. Yeah. That's so rich. It's that's so amazing. And so I guess you, your last big bike travel was around what, 2018, 2019. I think you got, uh, and I guess COVID hit and it's, I guess this all almost rolls up to the point where you, somehow go on the show which i guess is 21 22 what kind of happened during that period from almost uh like the like great bike ride that you did i think from yeah from the us all the way through south america uh from then on what was the what was the kind of next steps yeah i was um it, it was uh the, the the bike ride so i had been i'd been living in san francisco for several years as my home base but yeah. i would work for between 6 months to a year and then do trips for like three to six months yeah and sense. uh i had ridden from san francisco to the mexican border uh eight times i've done wow. that trip and i really like it i and i'm a hungry guy on a bicycle because i do love to eat so <laughs> i would i would hit all these spots and so if i got bored or stressed and i needed to to just kind of take a break I would say, I'm leaving for three weeks. I'll see you soon. And they're like, where are you going? I'm going to ride to the Mexican border and back. And that that was pretty odd to people. But I would go and, and I would go to a, a, my favorite uh, taco place or my favorite brewery. And it's all, you know, they're hundreds of miles away from each other. But I, I would do it and pitch my tent behind the, the taco place. And they, <laughs> when I, when I'd arrive, people are like, Oh, you're back. Hey, we haven't seen you for like six months. And I go, yeah. So I would sit in the back and I'd pound, uh, you know, it sounds like a lot, but on a bicycle, you could pound 10 beers. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah. and then I'd sleep in my tent over there behind the, the, the brewery. And so I got to the border on the eighth time and I've always looked over and you could see the kids playing and, and people in Tijuana. And I said, the next time I come back, I'm going to go to the end of the world. To, mm. I said, I'm not going to stop. And so I, I go back to San Francisco. And uh, during that time, this was the Trump era. So oh, okay. yeah. things things were different. I didn't like things, how things were getting uh, politically. And it was making me feel uncomfortable. And I didn't like the daily, the daily stress you got just reading tweets that that this guy sure. would write so i thought you know now's the time that i should probably just leave the country i thought now is um is really the perfect moment he has a couple more years of his term let me just leave while he's still in office and maybe i'll really get get out of this this headspace and this this uh, everybody kind of felt gloomy yeah um so i took a train to uh the border of the u.s and that's uh, in in Washington. So that is uh, the Peace Arch. There is a like an a, a arch there at the border, and you could enter Canada. And I actually started there, and I did the entire U.S. coast. And then I got to that border on the ninth time, the Mexican border, and I went, I'm gonna go, and I continued. <laughs> and then I, I as I continued, um, 
you know, I it was pretty hot. I, I decided to go in June. Oh, <laughs> so shit. Do, yeah. Doing Baja. Baja oh in God. June was <laughs> some intense heat. Oh, that was so Ooh. hot. How did so you even do it? Did you just like cycle through the night sometimes just to try and stay away from the, because you were in the heat of the day. I mean, I did it during the, the heat of the day oh, and I, I, I covered my hat, my whole, I had like a huge type of mosquito type net hat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and we, I was drinking 10, 11 liters of water a day and still trying to struggle with, uh, well, I, this is a cycling, um, knowledge but i try to pee every hour just a little bit every hour to make sure that i don't get dehydrated so when you go two hours and you don't pee a little bit and you're pounding 10 11 liters you're just like oh i need to drink more water so that's mm -hmm. how i judged it so 10 and 11 liters a day and i was still just trying to struggle to pee a little bit every hour so that's wow. that's pretty intense heat um and then i would i also wore those liners on my arms and legs yeah. white sun protectors so I was just completely covered uh, from head to toe. Uh, and nighttime was the only time because there's no way that I could have slept during the day. And I didn't yeah. want to ride at night. So the nighttime was the only cool time that I could actually sleep. If we rode during the night, then there was nothing we could do during no the day. To yeah. The heat. Yeah. But I that was uh, I thought because I met people on the road and I thought, oh, we're going to do this in a year. Some people were like, yeah, we're going to do this in a year. And some of them started in Alaska and did a lot. They're doing Alaska to. Yeah, to I know that yeah. And I thought because I lived in Alaska previously, I went, I don't really want to do Alaska. I go, I know that's going to be great distances on a bike. And it's a lot of wild forest. And there's a hell of a lot of bears. I said, I'm OK skipping Alaska and just starting at the at the border of the U.S. there. And so uh, and many of them. They did Alaska, but they really went uh, over a hundred miles a day to 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 get these yeah. uh, big expanses of nothingness, and so um, those guys were going too fast. I started to realize I had, I don't want to go that fast. I don't want to do a hundred miles in a day because if you do a hundred miles, you're going to miss so much. You're going to miss this woman here who makes these incredible papusas, yeah. and you're going to miss that guy who makes this really wonderful homemade alcohol, and and, and I'm like. I'm going to start to slow down for so, sure. When I bike to, uh, I only yeah. do like 50, 60 miles a day. Like when I'm doing proper bike touring, like when I went from, uh, top Poland down to Croatia, uh, yeah, probably averaging about, yeah, 60 miles, I guess. But that was a really perfect mix. Cause then you've got, yeah. and you can really interact with what's going on around you. You still like a, a guilt free. So you eat, eat, eat as many pizzas as you want, <laughs> et cetera. But, uh, it's, uh, yeah. It's a different, it's just a different thing. I, I almost see that as when yeah. people are doing the hundred mile days. Yeah, it makes sense. And so th those, those hundred mile guys, I tried to keep up with them a couple of times. And then I just said, you, you know, you, you can go ahead because some of them were also, they're doing a hundred miles, but they're also crushed on time. Yeah. And I, 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 this is where the time factor comes back into my life. And, and I guess my perspective is they were thinking they had to do it within this amount of time because they had to get back to work and they, or they had to return to their life. And I thought, man, the most precious thing in my life is time. And what I'm doing right here, right now, or this moment, because I have no wife, I have no child, I, I'm free and I have no responsibilities or debt or bills. I go, this is really the most precious time of my life out here on the road doing this. And many of them were, were just crunching the hundred, even 130, 140 a day. 
and eating ramen noodles every yeah. day, eating yeah. the same thing, oatmeal, ramen noodles every day. And I thought, wow, that takes away maybe 70% of the joy of this whole trip is tasting, is eating, is is this eating a meal with locals. So I really slowed down. And what I thought initially would be a year trip turned out to be two years. And as I got down to the end there, uh, COVID started hitting and we saw COVID. So we were in uh, we were in a village and people were talking in this little cafe about the Chinese and that a Chinese tour bus just pulled up and people were like, oh, no, the Chinese. And, and we're like, what's going on? And they said, don't you know? And they turn on the news and we look in the paper and it said this virus was was hurting China. And uh, I called my mother and I said, I think something's happening. I go, a lot of people down here in a village in, in, in the south of Argentina, they're talking about this Chinese virus. Are they talking about it in the U.S.? And my mom's like, yeah, but uh, it's not really that, that big. I said, mom, go to the store and stock up. Buy water, buy toilet paper, buy some things, because I think uh, this is going to shut, shut down the world. And she did. She did that before wow. everything went crazy. And so I, I got news from a police officer that if I don't make it to the border in two days, that I would, uh, wouldn't be allowed in Argentina because I was in Chile at the moment oh. at, at one time. And so Chile is three times the cost of Argentina. It's, everything is more expensive. Yeah. And I was really thinking, I don't want to be stuck in Chile. I have to get to Argentina. So I decided to not take the highway. I took a dirt road with gravel, but that was 120 miles of dirt road. Oh, that's tough. I had to get there in two days before they closed the border. So I busted my ass off in crazy ass Chilean weather, wind from all directions, oh. sometimes sleet and hail. And I did 120 miles in two days and I arrived at the border and all the border guards are saying, no, you can't cross. You can't cross. Oh. And there was a whole, a whole bus of Americans there. And they were telling me, no, if you're American, you can't cross. I skipped every, all of them. I went up to the front. I pulled out my passport and I said, I'm dirty as hell and sweaty. And I said, guys, look at my passport. I've been in Latin America for a year. I'm not coming from the U.S. I'm not coming. I don't have the virus. And they looked at it and they looked at each other and they were talking. I said, you got to let me in. I'm on my bike. I've been camping. I'm a hermit. I don't talk to anybody. And they were like, okay, you okay. Can come in. <laughs> they let me in. The Americans were so pissed. They were like, no, we're American. How can we not get in? And I said, travel by bike, guys. Travel yeah. by bike. And I wow. got into Argentina. And as soon as I get, got in, I was screaming. I was like, ah, I'm in Argentina. So if the world is locked down, at least I'm safe. Yeah. And I rode straight, straight to a sheep farmer. <laughs> I said, can I sleep in the barn? And he goes, yeah, yeah, you can sleep in the barn. I slept in the barn. And I started trying to ride to Ushuaia. Because I knew that they were going to even close the roads down. So I got, after what, that was one night. And then the next, so the third night in, in uh, Argentina, I was 71 kilometers from Ushuaia. And the, they, the police were on the road. They oh. knew I was on the road. They heard there was a cyclist. So they had a checkpoint. They had guys with hazmat suits, these chemical suits and yeah, masks. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. And they stopped me. And then they sprayed me with chlorine. With a Oh, my gosh, really? Holy shit. They sprayed my whole body. They sprayed my bicycle. They looked at my passport. 
They they were all wearing masks and gloves. They looked at my eyes. They took my temperature. I said, I'm not sick. I'm fine. I'm 71 kilometers from Ushuaia. I have to finish. And they go, no, you have to go to the nearest uh, village, uh, which was, what is the village? Ah, it's the la one village before Ushuaia. I just forgot the name. But they said, you have to go there. The, the road is closed. You cannot ride to Ushuaia. So I, I went into the, that village and it, all, nobody wanted to open their doors for me. But uh. one guy, the police told me to go to one guy and he owns a bakery and he's a hiker and a cyclist. Uh. So I, I went there and he opened his door and said, yeah, sure. I said, oh, you know, I, I'm not sick. He's like, I know you're not sick. You're fine. He goes, come on in. And I walked in. And in the basement of the bakery, there were six other cyclists there. And we were all stuck together. Wow. And he says, you could stay here. Uh, I don't know how long this is going to last. And he brought us baked goods every day. And we lived there one month in the bakery. We oh, were my unable gosh. To leave. Six of yeah. you just living there for a month. Oh, my seven gosh. Of us. Seven six of us. Seven of them and one yeah. me. Seven of oh, us. Oh, my gosh. So we slept on, on our mats in the basement yeah. of the bakery next to chocolate chips and flour for one month and he fed us he gave us uh cookies and pastries every day and uh then uh, th uh oh, i almost remember the name sorry forgot it but then uh after a month the the other guys started leaving they were uh getting catching uh buses to the airport and leaving but the united states didn't have a rescue mission uh, of all countries every country in the world sent uh repatriation flights for their mm. citizens yeah china russia they they would send a flight to buenos aires and pick up their citizens the u.s didn't do that the wow. u.s didn't help us so i was amazed you know we're supposed to be a powerful country but they didn't come and help us and i, I talked to a military guy i called the embassy and got transferred to a military guy and he says well we're not sending rescue missions but we could get you on a plane it's going to cost $6,000. And I was Whoa. like, 6000 I'm like, no, that's going to wipe me out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could live over here for a year. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's what I did. I, uh, I didn't take that crazy expensive flight out of, out of Argentina. I, uh, I talked to a, some policemen. A policeman talked to some firemen. And then there was a fireman who owned a house in Ushuaia. And he says, we're going to get you a house to rent and you could live there until the pandemic's over. So that last 71 kilometers, they took me in the back of a truck and I was like, Oh, <laughs> I can ride this. <laughs> yeah. But I had to go in a truck. So they, they took me down to a house and then I, I ended up living alone for six months oh, wow. in a house with, I, I had no friends. I, st I couldn't talk to anybody. You were only allowed out of the house to buy groceries oh, so gosh. uh all i did was eat and drink wine the entire six months <laughs> <laughs> wow and then what happened after that so you so then they, could you fly back or like yeah what happened then yeah originally the plan was to go to ushuaia and then yeah. i was going to jump on a ship and go to africa uh, so there's okay. a lot of a lot of international cruisers go to ushuaia they go yeah. to Antarctica and then they, they go back to Africa. I was going to jump on the ship and then continue cycling around the world. So that was screwed up. I went and I took a small flight from uh, Tierra del Fuego. So from Ushuaia 
to uh, uh, Buenos Aires. I waited yeah. in Buenos Aires for a week, and then there was an emergency flight. They only had three a month, and one of it was to New York City. Okay. And I flew to New York City, and the flight was only four hundred and fifty dollars. Okay. So even waiting six months there, uh, I saved thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, then I flew to New York, and my brother drove from Ohio here to New York. He picked me up, and he drove me and my bike back to uh, here, Ohio, where wow. I waited another three months before moving back to California. Wow. So that so was the pandemic. Yeah, that was up until what, like 21, basically, by this point? Yeah, 2021, yeah. I moved back to California in 2021. Yeah. And then I worked for uh, almost a year. I was working, but I did do another trip because they interviewed me for the show in about April. And so that would have been April of last year? Oh, 2021, April 2021 was the first interview. How did you even hear yeah. about the show, by the way? Was it just like a, an ad on Instagram or something? Or what, exactly. What is it? Yeah, yeah, ad on Instagram. So <laughs> I was just in, you know, I live off the grid in a camper full time. Yeah, so, so yeah, uh, yeah, so it looks awesome, by the way. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So I was just scrolling, you know, flipping through with my thumb on, on Instagram. And uh, I saw that ad and it said, do you, you think you have what it takes? And I thought, ah, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not a, a really big hunter. But yeah. I am a survivalist, you know, so I could survive in the elements. It's just I do need to improve my hunting skills. And so I, I thought, well, you know, I, I could do a team event because I really yeah. thought that being in a team, I would learn from hunters. I said this. Exactly. Is you, would, you would provide your skills. They would provide yes. theirs. And then exactly. Go. And just off the, just before we go to that. So the ad itself, you didn't even did you even know it would be a Netflix thing at this point? Was it more just like a. Just, yeah, like it's a show. We're gonna do something, uh, but you don't know much. Of, you don't have much of the context, right? Yeah, it was very vague. So I didn't know it was a Netflix thing. It just said, uh, "Do you have what it takes to Outlast?" And uh, I on the fan page on Netflix uh, underscore or Outlast or Netflix underscore Outlast the fan page. I posted uh, the ad. The actual ad is is up ah. there that we, we saw. And I submitted a 40-second video, 47-second video. Really, I took my phone, and I just walked outside my camper, and I said, hello, this is Javier. I said, I live in when I'm not living in this camper, I live on two wheels, and I, I ride my bike around the world. So if you want a guy with a lot of experience and a lot of stories, uh, come check me out. That's all I did. Wow. I got a call the next morning. They called me the next morning, oh, and I thought it was a, a scammer. I thought it was a phone scammer. And I go, what do you want? What are you, what are you trying to sell him? And he go, the woman goes, no, no, I saw your video. And I'm thinking the one I just sent literally <laughs> less than 12 hours ago. And she goes, yeah, we, I really like you. We, we want to talk to you. So they started talking to me. I had a, a one meeting that was supposed to be 30 minutes. And it ended up being like an hour and a half. She <laughs> says, I can't believe everything you told me was just like, she says, you're like Forrest Gump. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess. I said, I'm Forrest Gump on a bicycle. And she yeah. says, we, we got to talk to you again. And they kept interviewing me. And then I realized that I was kind of in the final pool. And I thought, okay, in order to get ready for this competition, I got to do a bike trip. So I actually, uh, I, I, I put my truck in, in storage in, in, outside of San Francisco. And then I jumped on my bike and I rode from Santa Rosa to the, the border of uh, 
the U.S. and Canada again, turned around, and then I rode the coast all the way back down to San Francisco. And okay. during that trip, uh, I gave up alcohol because I always detox. I wanted yeah. to get my, my body ready, but I also gained 30 pounds. So I was packing on the weight. That's a great strategy, by the way. That's an unbelievable yeah. strategy because there's a couple of guys, especially early on, they look strong, right? But I know that for a fact my body shape would just struggle. Like, I, yeah. My teammate, Corey, was, was so yeah. thin. Yeah. So Corey had to get off on the second day because he had no fat on his body. He yeah, was a he exactly. he was a model, an actual model. Oh wow! So uh, on that trip, I was pounding real heavy foods like oysters and uh, just tons of shrimp, just to get good uh, thick uh, layer of polar bear fat on my belly. Yeah. But um, and then uh, I had the the final meeting with uh, the producer Grant, and I was on the road, and Grant was looking, and he's like, "Are you in bicycle tights?" I said, yeah, I'm a, I, this is my bicycle. I was sitting on the ground outside of a, a, a cafe getting their Wi-Fi. Yeah, he's I love like, that. He said, did you sleep in the woods yesterday? I said, <laughs> I slept in the woods. I had to get up at <laughs> 6 in the morning to ride two hours to get to a cafe to talk to you. Oh and he's my like, gosh. oh, my God. He says, man, you're in. You're in. <laughs> we need a guy like you. If you're sleeping in the woods and talking to me at a, a on the street in front of your bike, he goes, we got you. You're coming to Alaska. I was like, okay, great. I'll see you in a month. And then I rode, I finished my trip. I uh, packed up my shit, put it in the storage. And then I flew at the end of September to Alaska where we had like a, basically a two week quarantine in a, a hotel. Somebody, because they flew out like, 20 people, I think. And uh, one oh, person wow. had... Broken. But there was only 16 that came through, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. They had alternates, just in case. Just, and okay. one, one guy actually had COVID. He tested positive. So then oh. they, they had to stay one more week in the ho hotel. And uh, we didn't talk to anybody. Did you uh, meet any of the guests before you even went up? Like before it's shown, like where you kind of all come out? into onto the river did you yeah. all meet each other beforehand no we had we had strict rules not to talk to each other and right. also i i really was a i was i went so far as that i actually told people i refused to tell people my name so somebody would be like somebody from the show one of the cast members would be like oh hey i'm i'm paul and I, i'd go no i'm, I'm sorry uh, i don't want to talk <laughs> i said <laughs> I because I knew all you had to do was Google search my name. If you Google search my name, you would find my my social media page, sure. and then yeah. you could tell my survival background and my extreme uh, endurance cycling background, and then then they'd be they'd get that in their head, and I didn't yeah. want anybody to know anything about me. So yeah. I didn't speak with anybody. I didn't hang around anybody. And many of us didn't in intermingle. I, I really didn't know any of their names going out there on that field. Wow. Wow. Oh, that's intense. And uh, did you or like, I mean, did you have doubts beforehand, especially like what were your lingering thoughts? Because like, the, the actual doing of being a survivalist is something that you probably more than maybe some of the others would feel comfortable with. But you also have to know, like, this is a reality show. You're going to be like, it's a game. So people are going to be, I mean, the way that people acted on there, especially towards you during it, maybe you didn't expect that, that level of kind of yeah uh 
didn't expect that kind of that behavior let's say and and also the afterwards like yeah you're going to be on a tv show in the us so you're going to be exposed you're going to become uh famous to a certain extent like did you think about any of that type of stuff aside from just the survivalist like elements before going in yeah uh, definitely i honestly i i don't watch any survival shows or yeah. reality tv yeah. um the only reality tv i i've ever seen is mtv's real world and uh uh i think it was called uh road rules those are old shows from the yeah. 90s that's yeah. the only thing i i saw and uh so i did not know i guess i i did not know the the this big brother and and survivor yeah, and yeah I, exactly I, yeah i didn't know those manipulation tactics the backstabbing and the alliances shit i didn't know any of that i went in this thinking that my only competitor was mother nature that <laughs> we were four different teams out there i had this in a way you could say this just this maybe a beautiful naive outlook of the competition yeah is because i thought it was going to be truly skill and i was going to outsurvive outlast and thrive in the Alaska wilderness based purely on my skill and my abilities. I never factored into hurting another team or manipulating people or stealing. Yeah. Not, that never came to my mind. And actually my team, and it appears Don and Joel, they also shared the same thoughts. For sure. And yeah. Brian and Brian and I, and even Corey and, and Timothy, the couple of days they were there, we, we shared the same beliefs and we were going to like create a solid base camp, which we finally did. Me and Brian did create a solid base camp, a solid foundation. And then from there, we were going to launch out and, and thrive in the environment. So uh, that was our goal, the whole strategy. I didn't really, we didn't need to communicate or talk to the others at all. That never really was an issue. Yeah. Um, and that was never a, a plan going into it or, or even there. And then I lived, you know, half my life, pretty much uh, kind of a traveling, someone said uh, a bohemian nomad. Somebody yeah, I like it. I like it. <laughs> so I've lived that as a bohemian nomad. And I thought I could do the second part of my life, I guess, a reality person, <laughs> whatever. I don't want to say star, but a reality TV person, I could do that. It, it's it'd be cool if people recognize me because yeah. nobody recognized me the, the last forty years. So why not the uh, second half? I get called out in a in a shop, maybe get a beer bought for me. That exactly nice. get those few beers bought in. Absolutely. Do you think on the show there was like influence at all from any like levels of the production? Like the was there any like notes that was like, hey, like. Wouldn't it be an idea if you did, if somebody did steal something like, or was it all just very, very organic? Like, were you the because especially when people started to be manipulative and, and and start to think about alliances and and then all of a sudden two people would somehow meet in a certain setting. Um, I don't know. I wouldn't say it was scripted, but there were certain times when it's shown when it, when it's shown to the viewer. It's kind of like, oh, how did that kind of happen? Because I just I'm not sure that would have been truly organic in the way that. Um, it's meant to it's meant to look does that make sense yeah no yeah. I, I i know what you're, you're talking about some people have mentioned it and read it 
I, I, I talk so much on Reddit. I've only been a member like 18 days and I'm just- <laughs> I saw your post the other day and it was like, I'm, re I'm real. And then you have a picture of your thumb or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so there, there was no, there was no coaching. There was no, it was not scripted, but you got to understand now looking, seeing the show, many of those people now, I, I don't know many of them, so I still don't know many of them yeah. um, because we, we never really had time to talk or anything. And I barely know uh, Justin, Joe, and Ember. We, we didn't really spend a lot of time with them at all. They were over there in their camp. It was just me and Brian busting yeah, our ass. It looked that way, yeah. <laughs> so we had very little interaction with them. The, uh, however, learning from, from uh, afterwards and, and, and what, what, what people have shared is some of these people were really big fans of reality shows. So mm. I know Paul, Paul has watched every single episode. I think of alone of survivor. I think he's watched every single episode of every reality survival sh type show. That's so interesting. These, these people came into the competition with this uh, playbook of strategies, yeah, uh, playbook of, of how to, uh, win and that I did not have that me and Brian didn't have that so we were uh, so when you see I think when people see the testimonials the confessionals uh, you're seeing somebody who's speaking and living in their mind what is a cool answer because they saw it on a show yeah so that when, when someone says it doesn't seem natural the what they said well, everything I said was natural because it was just from the heart and raw, and I've never yeah. seen these shows. But this is, some I of think the things that the other. Yeah, this is why I wanted to reach out to you. I was like, yeah. you seem like really real, but something else <laughs> it felt like I was like, this doesn't seem right. I mean, how do they? How are these meeting at this time and like these alliances that they're like forging up and they're, it's constantly being talked about? Yeah, but you're right. It's because they must have just watched so much of this stuff over the past yeah. like 10, 20 years. And yeah, there probably is yeah. just a bunch of playbooks that uh, are out there. <laughs> yeah, and some of the things that, uh, like, for instance, when Paul and Jill meet, a lot of people thought they, they couldn't have just met out in the woods. Yeah. And you're right. You're right. The one thing that they, they didn't just meet in the woods, that was a hunting challenge. We knew that uh, there was one area that, that we were told is where it's a good place to hunt. So uh, all, okay. four, all four teams knew where to go. And uh, even even uh, De Delta and uh, Bravo. So that's why they met there is because it was mm. a hunting challenge and it was a good area where there were deer sightings and uh, uh, good cover to hunt. So it's not just randomly walking in the woods. And I think some of those things could have been better explained, but I understand that you know, from a production side, they had to fit all of this stuff in eight episodes. Yeah, this and is also a challenge, right? They they have enough info, and I think it would have been interesting to make 16 episodes. <laughs> People For would sure. have been, you know, really watching it because it would have been half uh, survival stuff and us eating and making our cabins and hunting and then the other half drama and shit. But yeah. this is a new – this is a new type of um, – reality show in many ways i've read some critics reports uh and they said that this kind of breaks the mold of reality survival shows and it's exciting and it, it's it's new and and uh they that people suggest that there definitely has to be some 
some more structure and rules, but this is a new format that that is going to be interesting in the future. So it's been a good show for Netflix. Sure, it's been controversial, but we were the first. We were the first on a new yeah, platform. Exactly. We didn't know what we were doing. It was just the we weren't guided. They weren't trying to create drama. That shit. And I said on the show, Alaska doesn't bring anything out in you that wasn't already in you. Yeah, I like that quote those, a lot. <laughs> those ladies were like that. They are yeah. like that. So they just came to Alaska and they 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 had to deal with their demons. Um and I uh uh, so I, I, there was there was no coaching. There was no setting up uh, scenarios. And the first time we met Alpha Team, so the day four we got a drop, and that was the raft uh, challenge. Yeah. And uh, what a lot of people don't know, and this is a cycling thing, so you might get this. When I ride my bike on the road or a trail, I'm constantly scanning the sides of the roads. Yeah. I have found a lot of things. I've found oh, anything. Yeah. Money to phones to energy bars. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, I, yeah, I stop sure, and I go, sure. Oh, I need that energy bar. And I go and I grab it and eat it. Yeah. So as we were being taken out there on the river on the little boat to our campsite, I was scanning both sides of the river. And so that island that had the crab pots, yeah, that was in front of us. And there was a direct route to our campsite on the left side. But the boat driver took a long detour on the right. And I noticed that. And I made a mental note. And I thought, that's because that's shallow there. He can't, The boat driver can't drive on the, the left side because it's too shallow. So when they drop us off, four days later, they dropped the thing. And they said, make a raft and go down two miles to the island. And Brian is my only teammate. And in a survival situation... I would never enter the water. The water was 30 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, I thought you can get hypothermia in three minutes in in this water. And I'm thinking, Brian, I don't want you in the water. And I'm, I'm a hundred pounds heavier than Brian. And I said, I'm not getting in the water and I don't want you getting in the water. We're going to hike the two miles to the river. And Brian's like, no, why, why? And I told Brian, I said, Brian, I think we could get to the, the, the Island without the raft. And he's like, no. And he was irritated and he didn't see what I saw, but he came with me. I begged him. I said, I don't want to lose you, man. If you drop, drop in the water, you're going to have to leave. So we hiked the two miles down and on the way we got to alpha camp and alpha Justin was building his raft on the river. And then the two ladies come out and they started their eyes. I could tell immediately the way they looked, things were strange. And they suggested if we create an alliance, you guys go to the island, steal all four crab pots, pots so the other team doesn't have any crab. I didn't like that. But yeah. I just I just nodded my head in agreement. And me and Brian looked at each other. And I could tell Brian was like, I don't you like can see this that. idea. Yeah. 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 And so we just agreed with them because I've always been under the, the idea that you keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. 100%. So I wanted to just appease to these people and make them think that, yeah, we're friendly because we were in a vulnerable position. We were hiking down to an Island that was two miles away and these people could go rob us. That's what I thought of immediately. And so as soon as we left, we, we, we shook hands, we would help each other with the crab pots, but I had no intention of stealing the other team's crab pots. Yeah, for sure. So as we hike away, I start talking to Brian and this didn't make the show, but I told Brian, those sons of bitches are going to rob us. 
And Brian's like, what makes you think that? I said, there's no reason to talk about stealing. Why would they talk about stealing when they just, just met us? I go, they're not good people, man. And Brian's like, I don't know. I think you're rushing to judgment. And I said, nah. I said, I think those people are bad news that didn't make it. So we yeah. go down to the island and Brian said, we got to make this raft. And uh, production did tell us that we only had like so much time for the, the, the tide. Okay. And I was like, okay. So we start rushing to make the raft. As we're making the raft, I'm looking at the water and I'm seeing it's dropping pretty fast. And I'm, I'm, I knew there was a land bridge, but Brian wanted to get in the water. So we make the raft, we push him into the water. And I, I told Brian, you hear it once, I'm screaming. I said, use the stick like a gondola because it was not very deep. The stick yeah. could actually reach the bottom. But Brian told me to, to fuck off. He said, <laughs> shut up. He was all stressed. Yeah, and he was worried. That. He was worried that the, the 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 tide would take him out to the deep water. The tide brought him back to the shore, so he he got his feet wet, but he he was pissed. Moments later, they stopped filming. The tide went out, and there was a land bridge in front of us. It was oh, huge. Oh shit! And I I said, Brian, I'm gonna walk to the island and get the damn crab pots. <laughs> and production said, No, you can't do that because uh, it was like it was like five thirty. And the sun was setting. And when it sets out there, it is so dark. They said, guys, you we're, we're done filming for today. And it's too dark and dangerous. And the bear guard, there was a bear guard with a shotgun. And he says, yeah, you guys can't go out there. You have to go back to camp. Two miles to hike uh, back to camp. So that's why we didn't go to the island. We were uh, told for our safety and security that we had to get all the way back to our camp. So me and Brian are hiking up to the camp. Brian's feet are wet and he's bitching and complaining at me. And I was like, I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> so as we passing uh, Justin, Joe and Amber, I said, guys, if you want to help out with the crab pots, I gave him a juicy piece of information. I said at about. Ah, so you had already mentioned to them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I said at about 530 in the morning, we didn't have watches, so we couldn't tell time. But I said in 12 hours, it'll be low tide. Low tide is every 12 hours. I said, so it's about 5.30 right now. The sun, we have 30 minutes of sunlight left. If you get up at sunrise, you will be able to get a land bridge to the island. The ladies got up, uh, but they got up late. So they ended up crossing. Yeah, it's about 7.30 or something, right? Or 8, yeah. 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 So as they crossed over, that's when the water water started coming back. So they, they could have crossed at five, about 5.30 and had no problem. But that's why they got wet. And so mm -hmm. they gave us the crab pot. And then we, you know, all that. And they, they kept talking about alliance and whatever. No, I gave them the information they needed to get the crab pots. And they helped us out by giving us crab. But the crab pots ended up being a bitch afterwards. It was too hard, too much time wasted laying the crab pots. I gave up. I went up seven more times and we didn't catch shit. So I oh, said, forget gosh. this. Yeah. And the first time Justin actually laid them in his raft, he went really deep out there into the water because Justin had a huge raft and he laid the crab pots, but I couldn't get that deep and far out there. And also I, I'm a, I'm, well, how much do I weigh? At the time I weighed a hundred and uh, 10 kilos. Wow. <laughs> I weighed 110 kilos. So I'm like, I am not getting in the water and going out there on this yeah, little dinky sure. raft. <laughs> so we, oh we gosh. all, every team gave up, doing the crab because it was too i saw that it, it really became like apparent that everyone had stopped using them uh for yeah. sure yeah 
Yeah. If you were yeah. to go back, and would you would you change anything on how you on how, how the show went? Be anything that you'd be like there's the there's the moment especially where you're speaking to the two others and then you ask them to come your side would you maybe go on their side for example yeah so i i really and during the time when i, I was there uh and i think this is why timothy mentioned micromanagement in the his analysis of me my behavior is because i from experience i knew what would happen and i told the guys uh I know I'm going to sound like I'm annoying, but guys, you're here in Alaska right now. And I want to do everything I can to make sure you don't leave. And Timothy and Corey were really, really cold. And I said, guys, take your shoes and put your feet on my stomach. And they were like, no, oh, no. They were weirded out by that. I said, guys, I'm a polar bear here. I'm burning up. I'm really warm. Let me warm up your feet. You don't have to leave. And they did not want to do that. And I kept uh. telling them, I kept bugging them, guys, do this. Guys, please take off your shoes. Put your, your feet on my stomach. Get in the emergency plastic. We had a little emergency plastic. Yeah. I was I was in it. And I had my boots off and I changed my socks. We were We had two pairs of socks we were allowed to take. So they kept wearing the same pairs of socks that they were walking around in all day. So all the moisture and sweat from the day was now ice cold. So uh, they didn't do it. But I I told them to leave. I won't be regretting not doing everything I could in my power to try to get you to stay. So that came over to to Timothy as micromanaging. Mm. But in reality, it was me begging my teammates to, to try to stay yeah. and try to get them to do anything to, to just not leave. So looking back, I don't regret doing that because I actually did that. So I wouldn't regret because <laughs> I had I not done it, I would have been like, oh, maybe I could have done this. Maybe I yeah. could have said it more times. Maybe I could have begged them. No, I did everything in my power to try and get them to stay. The other thing with uh, now me and Brian, we were rocking it. We had a kick ass camp. We had a huge cabin. We had a raised queen-size bed, wooden bed off the ground. Uh, we were getting good sleep. And our campsite was located right on a deer trail. So in the mornings, deer would walk down from the mountain and stop right in front of our cabin and look inside. Wow. We were in a perfect position. So what you don't see is Joel actually came over once without dawn. And he saw our campsite. He saw uh, we had tea. I made him Devil's Club tea. Uh, Devil's we Club had tea. tea at the campsite. <laughs> he hung out in the cabin. He saw that what we had. And I told him about the deer. And he goes, this is the perfect spot. He goes, guys, I'm, I'm going to bring Don over here. So Don and Joel wanted to come over. Uh, we never thought that the Demon Squad would strong arm robbed me it was never uh and uh you know we we thought okay that the sleeping bag theft was because you know nobody was there i don't know we tried to rationalize it we, we didn't like it but we were gonna fix it don uh joel and don were gonna come over and we were the plan was to just take back those sleeping bags they attack us if they hit us or hurt us they would be kicked off the show immediately obviously yeah. there's there's laws 
despite what Jill said. I know. I know. This is crazy. Like, there's no rules. It's like, of course there's rules. I mean, in a country, what are you talking about? <laughs> we, we had we had rules. We had licenses. I didn't have a hunting license, so I couldn't kill a deer. But you had to have a hunting license. We couldn't cut down more trees. The the, the park ranger came out, told me to stop cutting trees because I cut twenty seven trees. Uh, we had we had the park ranger inspected our fire pits. We we also we weren't we weren't shitting in in a in the tr in the wilderness. We had the shit in a plastic uh, bucket uh, yeah. with a plastic bag because. It was a it was a national park, and that mm. that's pollution. So we could we had to take out our feces. So there are rules, there were laws, and uh, uh, Joel and Don were going to come over, and then in that moment they already had destroyed their whole campsite, and then they were they were moving their things over. So I I don't regret any decision that we made. We were making uh, decisions based on survival. We weren't yeah. making decisions based on. Uh, home protection and who's going to rob us in the woods so that was not a, a part of the game that should have been uh there it should yeah. have been an aspect that anyone had to deal with and had that not been there you know and the viewers know if don and joel came over and it was me brian don and joel oh, or even if brian had left yeah. and it was just me don and joel there was no stopping us we would have crushed everything we would have survived and thrived because that cabin was ready for us to start hunting out of what what the viewers don't know is we had water very close to us a spring right out of the mountain we didn't have to boil our water we were drinking straight from the spring wow. we had a, a a river really close to our campsite packed with trout so we were in a they very good location and yeah. me and Brian were eating two to three pounds of mussels a day all the other teams seemed to be starving they were yeah. really starving me and brian were not starving we were eating massive amounts of mussels wow. and seaweed so and, uh, i don't regret any of the decisions i made uh and i don't think uh yeah i don't think don don and joel they don't really regret the decisions they made it's just unfortunate that it, it had to be that way uh I'm still completely shocked why Charlie didn't take me. It doesn't seem rational. I don't yeah. have yet today a rational explanation why they didn't take me. I think uh, you have to do. I with even this. offered I mean, to shoot the flare as soon as yeah. we got out. If, if Alpha lost, I would have shot the flare. I didn't give a shit about the money. I didn't care about the money. I would have just wanted to thrive in Alaska, and I think I proved. Yeah. Uh, you just went on mute, have you? Oh, there Hello? you're back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, on the decision with, with Charlie, I mean, I guess it's probably, if they took you, probably they're just scared that the other team is just going to try and cause more damage. But I don't know, it seemed very harsh. Like, when we were watching Meet My Girlfriend, it just seemed like a no-brainer to allow you to join. Yeah, it was uh, maybe something, maybe it seemed a little bit from the outside looking in, like maybe Paul, because he felt like he had some level of alliance with Jill. And he maybe influenced the decision. I don't know, but um, I haven't anyway. talked to him. I <laughs> yeah. don't. Know. Have you talked? Have you talked to anybody since? Yeah, I've chatted with. Well, Brian is a buddy, nice. my buddy. I'm actually. Uh, I'm going to take Brian on a bicycle adventure. We're oh, amazing! Right yeah, Brian wants to do a bike trip, so we're gonna. I'm going to take him on a big bike trip. 
Holy shit. And, uh, where, where do you think you'll, uh, you'll go? Will it be US based or you think maybe somewhere else? No. So I think this is all preliminary. He's been riding a couple, some like 10, 20 miles to try and get used to the seat, get butt comfort. Yeah. But I think I'm going to go down to Florida and uh, we're going to go on an adventure. And, you know, I might try and drag him across the US, do a continental wow. tour. Oh, that'll be awesome. Yeah. I was going to say, me, yeah. and my, me and my girlfriend are doing, uh, we're going to go from Switzerland to Portugal in the autumn in, uh, what would it be, September, October time. So if you could manage to uh, somehow get across at that point, it'd be cool to cross paths. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, I have all. I, you know, I really know Switzerland's pretty expensive. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you, uh, if you if you come across here, uh, you've def- definitely got a place to stay. I'm in Bern, by the way. So uh, yeah. Oh when you, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very nice because I'm originally from the UK, but I've been living in Switzerland for about six and a half years. But it's similar. Like I mean, if you're going around by bike and stuff, it's actually yeah. Uh, same as most places, but it's just the food that is a challenge. The food's really yeah. expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. But I'm gonna get Brian on a bike. So I talked to Brian. That's fun. And uh, I've I've talked to Corey and Timothy. Um, but we didn't really establish that strong bond like me and Brian because we didn't. Sure. We only had two days together. Yeah. Uh, I've 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 chatted with Justin a bit because Justin, uh, we we weren't buddies out there, but he kind of uh. He he was interesting. He, you know, he he's lived in Costa Rica, runs a jujitsu uh, training oh, wow. facility. So that was pretty cool. I wanted to learn more about that. And uh, we've chatted a bit on online. I've chatted with John and uh, Joel and Don, and I'm actually going nice. to visit Joel in a couple of weeks. Oh, very fun! After Easter, I'm going to drive out drive out to Indiana and see him, and then I'm going to drive my camper all the way out to California again. Uh, so uh, the others I don't speak to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's also, I guess it was six months ago now, right? Probably when it was filmed. Is that right? Oh, it was more. Well, this was this was filmed in uh, this was no, the, November this of was 2021. November 2021, exactly. Shit, wow, that is a while. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it took, it took a long time for them to do the editing, man. It's a lot of footage, I'm sure. It's like every day, all day. And how many yeah. days were you out there in the end? That was like over 30? I was there tw- 21 days. 21 days, the, yeah. They, the, winners, the winners were there 34 days. Yeah, wow, wow, amazing! Hey, Javier, that was absolutely quality. Is there anything else we should quickly um, cover? But uh, I feel like we could run for hours. But I think this is, uh, yeah, this has been amazing. I really, yeah. I really appreciate all we talked about, and I'm really happy that we got a chance to really tap into your background a little bit more, know more about you. And yeah, yeah, I'm glad that we got to talk about more about the cycling influence on my life yeah, and everything. For sure, that that that's a big part of who i am and and yeah I, I really love that that's my passion yeah i love it it's um it's so it's just it's just the best way to travel it's um it's amazing hey we'll call it a day there then and um thank you so much for everything and yeah as i said if you're in europe definitely let me know and um and hopefully we can meet in person at some point okay all right Great. cool Thank you for listening, everyone. Beyond the Adventure is available on all major podcast platforms, or you can visit beyondtheadventure.com for all the relevant links. If you get a moment, please share with your friends and family. And finally, if you or someone you know would like to come onto the podcast, please reach out to me either by email on gareth at beyondtheadventure.com, 
through the website of beyondtheadventure.com or reach out via my personal social media. My handles across Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn are all Gareth Brown UK. Thanks again everyone and bye for now.